0: well good morning and good afternoon to those in the states Um, please feel free to sit more comfortably during the talk you don't need to sit so formally if if you don't want to it's important that you can feel able to concentrate so it's okay to relax a little but just as a matter of form we don't put our feet into the zendo it's Considered a little uh, disrespectful to show the bottom of your feet so we don't kind of stretch our feet out in front. Keep ourselves on the Zabuton, you can be relaxed on the Zabuton.
1: (laughs) Uh, Recently, I had
0: slight feelings of loneliness, which is very unusual for me to have, or to have feelings that we think of as um, unpleasant. So it just arose a few days ago, and it kind of makes sense. In a couple of days, it'll be a one-year anniversary since I left the United States, where I lived for most of 20 years, and particularly left my 19-year-old son behind, who's going to university there. And he and I are very close, and so it makes sense that I'm feeling a little bit of loneliness. But Usually, I think, what people do with these sorts of emotions is they tend to amplify them, uh, what we call striking yourself with the second arrow. The first arrow is the feeling, loneliness, and then the second arrow, which hurts even more, is what we do next. So it's fairly common for people to amplify a feeling when it arises by having thoughts such as this shouldn't be happening to me, this isn't fair, this is going to go on forever, thoughts like that. Uh, And also thoughts such as, I need to do something about this. So all of these thoughts that are like second arrow thoughts have their uh, basis in aversion. So the Buddha teaches us (coughs) to, to not to try something else, and instead, instead to be kind of open and investigate the feeling, be curious about the feeling. So this is what I did, the feeling of loneliness arose. I thought, what is this feeling? Like loneliness is a concept that we have, but if I just can slow down and be a little more granular with it, feel like what, what is going on underneath there, what I noticed was, I was missing being able to talk about the things that bring me joy as much as I was accustomed to doing with my son. We often talked about the things that brought us joy in the day. Like I might have told him about, I saw these pelicans in this formation going along the cliffs. Or I found a new mountain biking trail, it's amazing, amongst the redwoods. Or he might tell me about his weight training, or something he learned at school. And so then as I thought about, actually, that's what it's about. Loneliness isn't quite the right word. It's just this rising up feeling of joy that wants to express itself and just temporarily feeling that it wasn't getting a place. And then that gave me the idea of today's talk about joy. So then the feeling kind of drifted off. And I was able to just go, see you later, buddy.
1: Welcome back anytime. You're good for my practice. <clears throat>
0: so, joy is, I think, our natural state. When you think of a baby, a baby has to cry because it doesn't have language. It cries to get its needs met. But if it's fortunate to have caregivers, its needs do get met and then babies often smile and giggle and they're curious and they look around. I think it's our natural state
1: to feel joy.
0: And this joy is a little different to sort of regular what we could call happiness. I mean I think happiness is a fine word but I think we often associate happiness with enjoying, uh, things based on, um, conditioned phenomena. What you can sometimes is called mundane joy. It's joy about things that are happening but that will change.
1: So, you know,
0: feeling happy about any number of things. We can think of a bazillion examples. Um, Happy to have enough food to eat, happy to win a prize, happy that someone called you, all of these things. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with being happy about these temporary conditioned phenomena as long I as mean, there's something wrong with it. But if uh, we can remember that this conditioned phenomena will change, then the happiness <coughs> Uh, Doesn't then turn into um, disappointment when the conditions do change,
1: and of course, I think a lot of people um,
0: have difficulty appreciating that the phenomenal world is in a state of constant flux, and that true happiness, or what we would call joy, um, can't be found in in and wanting to hold on to you know, positive experiences and positive events and positive conditions. Because they're always going to change. And we all, you know, know this kind of roller coaster. But people will do this, you know many of us do this to varying degrees for our whole life because there is an illusion of control, because we do have some temporary control. Like we have an aspect of control, we can control our environment to some degree, but it is only ever to some degree, and uh, and then it falters. At the very least, people get sick and die. At the very very least, but usually many many other things, like losing jobs or losing friends, or gaining an unpleasant experience. Someone shouting.
1: So on. So, as long as we
0: remember that uh, the happiness that we gain from ordinary things, like I've mentioned this many times to Alex and Mabamwe, I feel great happiness that we have this sender. It's this beautiful space, and I am aware that it uh, will not last forever. And so, it's important for that happiness to have just that knowledge. That it's based on conditions. And that way we can enjoy it. We can enjoy it without getting disappointed when it goes away. So there's nothing wrong with mundane joy and nothing wrong with happiness as long as we remember. But this sort of joy that I was thinking about in relation to this feeling of loneliness that came up and thinking about my son in our conversations is a different type of joy. It's a joy that is very reliable because it's a joy that's based on just pure awareness of the present moment and what's arising in the present moment and that is always accessible to us even in our dreams 24 7 365
1: always available to us even in our dreams so, it's very reliable, this sort of joy.
0: Uh, it's sometimes called mudita, and the description of it is it's an unselfish, or you could say unself conscious, appreciation, um, uh, even a, a sort of vicarious appreciation of ordinary things, just a simple appreciation of ordinary things. So a real appreciation that all of us are here right now. We have five of us in the Zendo, and four people joining us on Zoom. Just an appreciation of that, here we are. It's a huge planet. There's an enormous number of choices of things that one could be doing in this moment, but this group of people have all decided to be here at this particular moment in time, and that's something to just appreciate. So there's this kind of joy in just ordinary things that stems from just an awareness of the present moment and what's arising in the present moment. There's also a joy in uh, in others' good fortune, which is a lovely joy to have, to just spontaneously be happy for someone else's positive experience. Sympathetic joy. And again, I don't think this is even something that we need to cultivate. I think it's our birthright. I think it's our natural state to feel sympathetic joy. We have learned in some situations to not have sympathetic joy, to have maybe competitiveness, um, or to compare ourselves unfavorably to someone who's doing better than us and so on. But we can unlearn those things and discover the sympathetic joy that just is our natural. Birthright and then there's another joy which I think is a little less common for people to consider Which is a joy in being able to suffer with suffering beings
1: This is our bodhisattva
0: vow to Not just liberate beings from suffering, but to be glad To be joyful to be able to be in such a position to feel the suffering with others and this kind of joy is called objectless joy it's called objectless joy because subject and object dissolve the gap between self and other collapses and the, the pain that other, others feel we dissolve into that with them and are glad to be able to witness that and be part of that with them, without a sense of ourselves as subject or them as object. And that joy is always available to us. We don't have to go searching for suffering to connect to it. It arrives moment after
1: moment. I was thinking if someone said to me, well, what would you
0: prefer to not be aware of the terrible things that are happening in the world and be sort of like blissfully ignorant, as I say, would I prefer that or would you prefer to know? To I would definitely prefer to know. Which doesn't mean um, having to spend lots of time searching online for all the troubles of the world. You don't need to know every detail. You don't need to know any of the details, actually. You can just know the bare, bare facts of the matter. There is suffering and distress in the
1: world, and we would
0: prefer to be aware of it.
1: But that is a type of joy, to have the strength to do that. It's a great privilege to have the strength to do that. So it's also
0: joy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment, along with, and I always have to read my list because I'm not good at memorising this, mindfulness, which is another way of just saying awareness, curiosity, the term that I use a lot. You can also use the word investigation.
1: Or contemplation, energy,
0: tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So, joy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. And it doesn't have to be loud, it's not like um, we have to be constantly smiling and bubbly. It can be a kind of quiet joy. That's all dependent on our personalities, our personality styles. I think I'm a fairly sort of expressive personality, so it, it kind of shows a fair bit. I smile quite a lot and I laugh quite a lot. And I like to see the humour in things quite a lot. But some people are full of joy, but it's expressed much more gently. So all of us can express this joy and feel this joy in whichever way our personality. Uh, expresses itself. And I was having a conversation, I, actually I think with Scott, who's here today, um, yesterday about how there is a bit of a perception sometimes that the Buddhism is a little bit sombre because of the teachings, the, the, the Four Noble Truths, the first teaching of Dukkha, which is often translated as suffering. But I've always preferred the translation of restless dissatisfaction or restless unsatisfactoriness. Um, But the Buddha did not teach that life is suffering. That is just a phrase that's been kind of um, commonly used, but that's not what the Buddha taught. The First Noble Truth is just the word dukkha, just the word itself. It's just a recognition that there is... uh, in the human condition, a restless dissatisfaction or unsatisfactoriness that we experience. But the, ma- the majority of Buddha's teachings was on how to liberate ourselves from that state to return to our natural state, to unbind us. It's not as if we have to transcend or gather anything. We simply need to unbind ourselves to locate the original state that's already there the liberated state that's already there.
1: Uh, so, um, how, how do we
0: find, how, how do we go about um, accessing this joy that is our birthright, that is our original state? Uh, and one of the main ways in our tradition, of course, is Zazen. In Zazen, over and over and over, we're bringing the mind back to the present. Just bringing it back to the present. A hundred times a sit, bringing it back. Drifts away, nothing wrong with that, no judgment, but bring it back. Drifts away, that's fine, bring it back. Drifts away, bring it back. The more we do that, the more that bringing back feels beautiful. The ordinary life, just, just this, the view just from this space here is so extraordinary. It's so abundant. It's so much uh, more, more rich than any kind of thoughts I could have about it or about anything else. Sometimes it's described that if if our attention is to our thoughts, our thoughts are, are like the um, you know like a soap opera or a, a poor quality movie. They it lacks depth, it lacks variety, it lacks imagination. It's very limited in what it can create just inside our head compared to just opening our eyes and our ears to what's around us. Like you couldn't you couldn't document what you can see when you simply open your eyes. Even if you were to open your eyes in a prison cell, if you look very closely, there would be so much to see, even in a prison cell. It would be more rich and abundant than any thoughts any of us could have about it or about anything else. So that's what our Zazen does. It helps train us to bring our mind back to the present, back to the present, back to the present. And the more we are present and the gap between our conceptions and, the, and our experience collapses, then joy just naturally emerges, it's just a natural thing. And I like to think too about uh, joy joy in the flux joy in the knowing of the transience of all phenomena. But we can really actually feel joy about that. Like we love it more because we know how temporary it is. And I think we, we sort of know this from our other experiences, just you know, if you know someone you love is going to go away, you tend to really appreciate them for the last bit of time you have with them because they're going to go away. You're going to go overseas or something, and you've only got a week left. You tend to want to, you know, really appreciate them for that little week that you have left. Well, our whole life is like that. Everything is temporary, everything is in flux. And we can feel a joy in the actual flux, appreciation that the flux allows us to love things. There's a story in the commentary of Case 5 in the Gateless Barrier, the Khan, Robert Aitken's translation. Uh, the koan is uh, Xiang Yan's upper tree, but rather than talking about that case, I want to read the story of Xiang Yan's awakening, his awakening story. When Xiang Yan was a young monk, he studied under Pai Chang and it was only when Pai Chang died that he became a disciple of Kui Shan. He was an intellectual and, like many intellectuals, had a time, hard time with practice at first. One day Kui Shan said to him, I am told that you have been under my late master Pai Chang, and also that you have a remarkable intellect. But the understanding of Zen through this medium necessarily ends in intellectual and analytical comprehension, which is not of much use. Yet you may have some insight into Zen. Let me have your view as to your own being before your parents were born. So this is like a koan that was given to him. Let me know your view as to your own being before your parents were born. Another way of saying, what is your essential nature?
1: Who are you before the conditions of
0: being born and dying? Hsien Yang couldn't respond. He retired to his room and looked through all his notes of Pai Cheng's Taishos, but he could not find anything suitable. Returning to Shan, he said, I have failed to find a response to your question. Please teach me the essential point. Kui Shan said, I really have nothing to teach you, and if I tried to express something later you would revile me. Besides, whatever understanding I have is mine and own mine is my own and will never be yours. Xiang Yan thereupon burned his notes and determined that he would just uh, that he would be just a rice gruel monk and face Kuei profound question moment by moment rather than trying to solve it by means of intellectual research. Hearing that the tomb of Nanyang was being neglected, he asked Kuei Shan's permission to go there and serve as caretaker. Kuei Shan approved, so Xiangyan built a small hut near the tomb and spent his days cleaning the grounds absorbed in his koan. One day, while sweeping up fallen leaves, his bamboo broom caught a stone, and it sailed through the air and hit a stalk of bamboo with a little sound, tock. With that tok he was awakened. Hurrying to his hut, he bathed and then offered incense and bowed in the direction of Kuei Shan's temple, crying out aloud, Your kindness is greater than any of my parents. If you had explained it to me, I never would have known this joy.
1: The story of the pebble hitting the bamboo and going tock is a well-known story. And the result was this joy arose in him. This joy burst forth in him.
0: And the preparation for that experience was that he was simply cleaning and sweeping and caring one of the ancestors' tombs. So this joy really is available to us, and it's available not through any intellectual pursuit, but simply in bringing our mind to the present tasks in front of us, whatever they may be. Sometimes they might be just simply sweeping and cleaning, and other times they may be much more complex. Sometimes we have complex lives with complex problems. But nevertheless, in each moment, each moment itself is not complex. We can only do one thing at a time, no matter how kind of complex it seems in the string of events. And if we give our full attention to whatever needs to be done, time to get into the car, time to head to the appointment, go in, see the doctor, have the conversation, whatever it might be. Each thing is just this pure moment that we can engage with wholeheartedly. And if we do that, uh, our natural joy
1: just starts to emerge. All right, I think I'll stop there and open up to any questions or comments from anyone in the Zendo or on Zoom.